Hi, you're listening to the Brute Norse podcast, where we walk backwards into the future. My name is Erik Stolesen, and I am a Romanized barbarian coming to you from the heart of the new empire. Like many of my contemporaries and many before me, I walk the streets of the city, bombarded by sights and smells and habits that are just different enough from those of my own people in my northern European homeland and the sights and smells so familiar to me from my native culture are often entirely unavailable to me. Like the Scandamericans who came here before me, I see myself drifting ever closer to the postcard Norweginess so often mocked back home, while I realize that being Norwegian cannot be reduced to the fetishization of folk art, lutefisk, accordion music, and Viking-themed kitsch. I realize that Norwegian Americans were not really left with much of a choice. It was either this, or to face rootlessness. At the end of the day, I question whether this is really so much different from the performance of Norweginess that I am used to back home. We are both extensions of the same Norwegian organism that merely seeks to stay alive. In this episode, I shall see Norweginess not from the bird's-eye view of the politicians or the historians, but like the gods of the old mythology, I shall seek wisdom beneath the earth and see Norway in its subterranean, chthonic, giant aspect. What is a Norwegian, first of all? What is Norweginness? How did the Norwegian idea manifest? How has this idea affected our vision of the past? And perhaps more poignantly, how has the past vision of Norweginness shaped the past future of today? My name is Erik Storbsen. Today we shall be walking backwards into the future, searching for my identity. This is Norway's Eternal Return. saying goes that a dear child has many names, and Norway has been called many things, from the land of the midnight sun and the fjords and so on by the tourist industry, to Odin's spruce-bearded bitch by the skaldic poets. Well, at the very least, if I venture into the extremes of what translation allows for. But Norway has two official names, or variants of the name, depending on how we are to perceive them. The names Norge, and Norweg, N-O-R-G-E and N-O-R-E-G, respectively. Some of you may have looked at them both and wondered if the latter was a typo, because it kind of looks like the letters have been swapped, or something along those lines. A process in linguistics called metathesis, which means that the phonetic order of the word has been corrupted or changed. As an interesting side note, we may note that Metathesis is often a deliberate device to circumvent tabooed words, essentially redefining the sequence of sounds to make a word with the same semantic content while relieving the word of some of its potentially disgusting connotations that are invoked when it's pronounced. Take the Old Norse word for anus, for example. Originally this was ars, related to modern English ass and ars, 
ultimately from Proto-Indo-European Hirsus. This Ars developed into Ras at some point in the Old Norse language, presumably because Ars left a foul taste in the mouth when people pronounced it. Ras was a clean slate, but that's a big digression and not very helpful to understand why some say Norge and others say Norge. You may have been told that Norway, both in English and Norwegian, means the way north, or some such variation on that very theme. This etymology appeals to the Norwegian self-image as a culture that very much celebrates nature, a romantic package that happens to stroke the Norwegian ego while simultaneously also giving the tourist industry a little pep in the step, so to speak, generating millions of dollars in revenue while the yearly cruise ship armada poops our fjords to death and chokes the bird life with its fumes. Norge, the North Way, suggests to the Norwegian romantic that he too is a culture hero, doing battle with the elements, as he casually walks his dog through a lantern-lit, newly paved forest road, and dares to call it outdoorsmanship. So Norge and Norreg are both commonly assumed to mean the Northern Way and so on and so on. This is a widely known and rarely questioned fact even among Norwegians, but the tentative reality is that Norge and Norreg may possibly, potentially, be two separate names with two different etymologies. As I shall be repeating many times in this episode, Norway was once a land of many kingdoms, and the two forms Norge and Norreg might well record two contesting names of the kingdom itself. Norreg is certainly cognate with Norway and does appear to mean the way north. Norge, on the other hand, is somewhat less clear. It represents either a bastardization of the other term, or it goes back to an obscure Noriki that didn't gain public acceptance until the late medieval period, when doubt seems to arise about the exact etymology of the name. Due to Norway's extreme abundance of dialects, Norway can be pronounced differently depending on where you are in the country. We find names like Norge, Nørje, Nori, and so on. In Danish, the language of our former overlords, Norway's name had developed into Norge, and it was certainly a widely held understanding then that the Rie was the very same as modern Norwegian Rike, meaning kingdom or realm. However, the 11th century runestone from Kuli which is the oldest attestation of Norway's name in Old Norse, can be read as either, with some arguing that indeed it says Noriki instead, aka the North Kingdom and not the North Way. What I'm trying to ease into here is that Norway and my Norwegian identity is a tangled mess that only gets stranger and more eldritch the more I gaze into the abyss. What at first seems to be a curated canon of Norwegian habits, features, and traditions appears as something deeper and more startling as I realize that Norway is a form of hyper-organism in its own right. I am not sure exactly where me and this Norwegian creature ultimately stand, but I know that it lives partially through me. I believe it comes from the future the past, and the present, and that its continued existence is secured through ritual performances and reenactments. As you may or may not know, Norway carries the burden of having two versions of its main official language. These two variants of Norwegian are called bokmål, meaning book tongue, and nynorsk, meaning new Norwegian, respectively. To the casual outsider, they may seem so similar that it borders on redundancy, but I'm gonna let you be the judge of that as we listen to some examples, using two authentic sound bites representative of the Norwegian folk spirit. Exhibit A, to pester the old and infirm for the sake of fun and games. First in Bokmål and then in Nynorsk. Are you ready? Good. 
och pine äldre och uföre för fryd och gammens skull. Now, let's hear the same sentence expressed in nynorsk. Och pina äldre och uföre för fryd och gammans skull. Did you hear the difference? Good. But let's hear another example. Exhibit B. I drained the swamp to torture the bird life. Jag dränerar myra för att skada fuglelivet. Jag dränerar myra för att skada fuglelivet. Why not use these handy phrases on your next trip to Scandinavia? Oh, but by the way, did I mention that these languages are for the most part written and do not accurately reflect how many or most Norwegians actually speak? It is impossible to have one unifying written norm that covers the entirety of Norwegian speech, and that is because there seems to be as many Norwegian dialects as there are Hindu gods. Norwegian identity and identity in Norway is intimately tied to linguistic identity. Your choice of written language is a decent predictor in terms of your regional heritage, your level of education, your political affiliations, and so on. Nynorsk is particularly subject to gatekeeping by linguists who often argue over what ought to be the proper spelling norm of the language, which purports to be a synthesis of the different Norwegian spoken dialects, while bukmål is loosely based on Danish and tends to be closer to the spoken language of certain parts of East Norway. Bukmål is most commonly seen as it is written by roughly 90% of the population, despite the fact that only 20% of the Norwegian population speaks in a manner similar to the way that bukmål is written. Nynorsk, on the other hand, is the preferred language of many parts of the Norwegian intelligentsia, so it is overrepresented in academic institutions as well as certain cultural ones. As a student of Old Norse as well as Nordic language and literature more broadly, I soon developed an awareness over the fact that many of my peers were writers of Nynorsk and not bukmål, often by choice. It really seemed like preferring the language was sort of an expectation that came with a higher education, especially in the field of the Nordics. And while I made some attempts at converting myself into a full Nynorsk writer, I just couldn't do it. Despite the fact that Nynorsk has many features to it that I would find attractive, it has more archaisms to it, it is a more beautiful written language in many regards. It has a greater overlap to how I actually speak compared to Bukmål, but nonetheless, as a Nynorsk writer, I always felt like an imposter. And this, I think, in part, is because, well, A, I did not grow up having Nynorsk as my main written norm, and B, it seemed to be too much of a conscious choice. My dialect was a true representation of who I was according to the criteria of lack of choice, as if my true identity had to be something ultimately involuntary, which would have made my conversion to Nynorsk an inorganic and ultimately self-denying gesture. Another thing I found quite peculiar was that I suddenly found myself talking to professors who had abandoned their native dialects and instead more or less completely resigned themselves to speak a form of Nynorsk, otherwise only pronounced in poetic recitations or readings or something like that. I don't think that these linguistic cyborgs actually exist outside of the universities. I don't think even news anchors actually speak like that when they exit the studio. And so, it struck me as an over-obvious representational identity, too synthetic and curated for its own good. Depending on where you are from, losing or changing your dialect is seen as a big taboo. It signals that you are ashamed of your roots and do not want to associate with your home district or village. Typically, this affected youth who moved from the countryside to study 
and later returned with an urban dialect. This may have softened up a little bit in recent years, but historically this was certainly true. And I can't help but think there's something suspicious about a person who actively chooses not to speak the way that he was brought up to speak. Because your dialect pinpoints you to a certain area. Just 30 seconds of me speaking my own dialect would pinpoint me to the northern parts of the county Rogaland. People will very easily pick out that my dialect belongs to the district of Haugaland. I speak very much like they do in the city of Haugesund, but certain choices of words and certain pronunciations might reveal that I have more of a Karmay dialect. But clearly not a southern Karmay dialect. In fact, I speak some sort of mainland Karmay dialect or something like that. That way you can assess where people are from within just a few miles of each other. In my teenage years, typically on Saturday nights, I could hardly take a 30-minute bus ride without getting my ass handed to me by groups of drunk young men defending their tribal territory. It only took a brief exchange of words to identify me as an outsider, out to steal every pussy in the village, unless they squashed me like a fly. And every now and then these speed freak berserkers would take their drawl with them like cattle raiders across the bridge, where their own linguistic identity was about as celebrated as a longship in Lindisfarne. Norwegian dialects are a noble and ancient phenomenon. After all, our land is expansive and sparsely populated. Certain dialectical features were present even in the pan-Scandinavian Old Norse tongue, and some even argue that Norwegian, Swedish, and Danish still constitute dialects of one language, rather than three separate ones. The problem is that even though we talk about language and dialect as if they are easily distinguished, there's no objective set of criteria to set them apart. We may wonder why we regard spoken vernacular dialects as something subordinate to more or less designed written languages. It reveals, of course, that modern textual, that is, written languages, have been fitted to suit abstract bureaucratic needs. And at least in countries where there is a clear distinction between written and spoken language, as I expect there are many examples of, what follows seems to be an almost implicit depersonalization of the language itself. These written languages, or their sociolectical subforms, seem to insist on their own importance and corresponds very well with certain groups and classes of people. You know, because they use the written word as an identity marker. As part of this personal customization of your identity to fit a certain group. A very strong contrast to this would have been the Old Norse language. It didn't originally have to deal with the concept of a written language at all. It was a purely oral phenomenon. Like any language, it could be expressed in writing. And Old Norse culture did possess the runes which allowed them to do so. And while there were certain spelling conventions, even in the use of the runic alphabet, Old Norse runic inscriptions, and later also Old Norse written in the Latin script, was still expressed in accordance with a write-it-as-you-say-it sort of philosophy. And compared to the importance of eloquence and the spoken word and the admiration for oral art and poetry, the written word played such a minor role in the culture as a whole that the modern concept of literacy becomes highly problematic. I suppose that in day-to-day -day speech, literacy is more or less synonymous with uh, competency. To talk about illiteracy in the context of an oral culture is sort of like uh, criticizing sailors for not being good truck drivers. There is something extremely alluring about oral culture's seeming lack of conscious artifice and separation from physical recording. Ironically, 
Early Norse culture was very conscious about the fact that books were items of prestige in certain foreign cultures. When they saw a book and saw writing, they knew exactly what it represented, and that writing could offer something that the spoken word lacked. That is arguably the allure of the runestone. In principle, words are fleeting barks of information that could only survive in the human memory, a reality that oral cultures learned to cope with very well. With the introduction of writing, statements can be recorded and retrieved on and from a physical medium. Runestones allowed brief statements to be expressed in an imposing physical form as machines of commemoration, saying that I, the rune carver, once existed, and so did the person dear to me, in whose memory this stone was raised. To be able to encode information in this way is arguably a beautiful thing, but down the line of history, the burden of remembrance no longer falls on the individual. The individual living in a written society does not actually need to remember anything as long as they are able to look up the information that they need, and such a society devalues expressions that are not committed to recording, sacrificing a world of stories, possibly, for a world of information hoarding and encyclopedic references. Just think about how reliant we are on the written word on a day-to-day -day basis. Every time we experience a story in one of the many mediums that we are able to enjoy them in this day and age, we are always talking about the same piece in terms of its structure and content. While we may perceive new layers or notice certain details in a book every time we read it, the actual book contains the exact same story down to the exact number of words every time it is being read. The recorded medium and all performances that sprung from such a written culture has a tense rigidness to it that oral culture often lacks. We can say that writing is brittle while orality is pliable. Every time we read Norse poetry, for example, we are reading a crystallization of a pliable poetic tradition that was probably at least in part improvised every time the pieces were being performed. Yet people tend to read Eddic poetry as if it was biblical scripture or pieces of very calculated literary penmanship. The myth or story itself is something more ethereal and abstract than the concrete form it is performed or recorded in. Just think about how many versions there are of any given folk legend or folk song, courtesy of the adaptability of performance combined with the limitations of the human memory and qualities of our imagination. Due to what we might call an oral fixation in Norse culture, people were forced to rely on this bardic tradition of poetry that was quite literally a tool. If you know anything about Norse mythology, you'll no doubt be aware that the Viking and medieval Scandinavia had quite a rich poetic tradition, generally separated into Eddic and Skaldic poetry respectively. Eddic poetry represents a fairly simple narrative verse tradition containing few poetic metaphors and often very quotidian language and phrasing, while Skaldic poetry is more of a high art that probably developed as court poetry originally and was extensively used in aristocratic and military propaganda. Unlike the more haphazard poetics of the Eddas, skaldic poetry also represents an approximation towards a more permanent mode of expression. The Norse obsession with remembrance in a forgetful world allowed them to develop extremely advanced forms of skaldic verse. Poems in the so-called Drottkvet meter stand as monumentally technical works of virtually intranslatable art. The verse of these poems is so tense and rigid that to omit certain words or phrases 
was to stand the risk of corrupting the very poem itself and leaving the stanza incomprehensible even to a contemporary audience. Mind you that the poems were so advanced that you needed a basic poetic education to even make sense of them in the first place. The word order is so freed from the normal syntax of everyday speech and prose that individual stanzas look like somebody loaded a shotgun full of words and fired them through a cookie cutter. Therefore, the contents can only be decoded for knowledge of the case system of Old Norse grammar. That basically means that if your language lacks a case system, as the case is with modern Norwegian and English, this part of the poetic tradition is grammatically impossible to revive into a living art form. The only way to quote-unquote translate such a poem is to completely rewrite it. But even when the poem begins to make grammatical sense, you will need to start picking away at the culture-specific and often mythological references, which sometimes elude us because we simply don't have the available sources to understand exactly why this or that metaphor made sense to them. At which point skaldic poetry seems less like a normal spoken utterance and more like a mnemonic poetic programming language with heavily religious connotations. As a side note, I sometimes like to fantasize about android, robotic, skaldic poets using their artificial intelligence to generate poems in exponentially complex meters incomprehensible to the human mind. But even on the level of human attainment, it doesn't help that the Norse poets also operated with a complex metaphorical layer where mundane nouns like man are hidden behind phrases like the oppressor of cheese or the polisher of the fires of the bed of the coalfish to take one particularly extreme example. It is much easier for the human mind to maintain and recall the memory of an image that is bizarre and strange, and the poets use this art to spread a certain image of the king while also developing and spreading religious and political concepts and ideas, some of which manifest in Norse mythology as well as the story that came to be told about the Norway and Viking Age Scandinavia itself. Basically, Viking era court poets were full-on surrealists responsible for conjuring up what is possibly the least accessible literary art form ever conceived of by the human mind. Meanwhile, some contemporary novelists are criticized because, well, their sentences are simply too damn long. This ideal of artistic purity, simplicity, and clarity is pretty much the antithesis of the labyrinthine mutant darkness of pagan Scandinavian art, which was first challenged by the Christian Romanization of Norse culture, and eventually also the European Romanization of Scandinavian society as a whole, which eventually grew into this post-industrial parent culture that I was born into. A contemporary example of a Norwegian author who is often criticized for his exceedingly weird and complicated language is Ture Erik Lund, who is often proven to be exceedingly resistant to translation for that very reason. He is also responsible for one of the better and more mind-boggling things I have ever read about the state and performance of a certain identity. In our case, Norwegianness, and about the Norwegian being and uh, non-being? Question mark? Just like the stories of Odin and Thor, there is a subtle difference between the myth of Norwegianness itself and how the myth is expressed and performed in the world we live in. And this is probably where I should say that I don't take myth to be an untrue story here. I'm not using myth in the sense of a lie. I'm using myth in the sense of a story that informs or comments upon or reveals something about reality that can only be or at least benefits from being addressed indirectly 
in a narrative package, but also myth as the backdrop of ritual, by which we may argue that ritual plays an important part in the establishment of reality, and consequentially, also history. A good example would be national holidays like the 4th of July, or in Norway that would be the 17th of May, where the entire nation breaks into a ritual reenactment of the Norwegian myth. Folk costumes play the part of liturgical garments, and the masses indulge in ritual hot dog consumption. A grand birthday for Norway herself, where historical time gives way for sacred time, and the revelers stand in communion with their ancestors and national heroes of old. This is what the Romanian historian of religion Mircea Eliade would refer to as the eternal return. In his essay, Nogmen og Garninger, Norwegians and Madmen, Ture Erik Lund defines two modes of the Norwegian existence. First, you have the Norwegian Norwegian on one hand, and then you have the true Norwegian on the other. Basically, the Norwegian Norwegian is omnipresent in our society. They define themselves, they are ideologically concerned, and they're also concerned with what other people think, to be as palatable as they possibly can in every given situation. On the one hand, they are cultivated and cosmopolitan, but also concerned with archetypically Norwegian pursuits, like eating oranges in the snow in your woolen sweater. They may talk about Norwegian values and do battle over the very definitions of Norwegianness itself. They say that to be Norwegian is a state of mind. Whether you are born with skis on your legs or self-identified and proud to be here, but whatever they are, and Norwegian Norwegians are the majority, they are rabid consumers of news and media, of ideas. Who are eager to adopt and name and also shame, engaged personalities who desire to be part of something and are interested in what is going on. They are consumers of goods, neurotic spenders, self-absorbed and eager participants of what Lund on other occasions refers to as a collective societal narcomania. The true Norwegian, on the other hand, is a voiceless, faceless figure, sometimes a backwards hayseed from some flyover country in the Norwegian periphery defined almost by his lack of definition. The enthusiastic modern language used to define and come to grips with everything Norwegian cannot or will not grasp him, and maybe purposefully leaves him out. I cannot help but see the true Norwegian as a kinsman of the spectral troll of Norwegian folklore, as a sort of shadow entity to the ideal ethno-cultural poster boy, fully and completely out of step with the world of the Norwegian Norwegian. The true Norwegian is defined by his disinterest in being named, and his lack of representation, and utterly disinterested lack of comprehension. If the true Norwegian ever rose to identify himself as a true Norwegian, his true Norweginess would cease to be, and he would join the ranks of the Norwegian Norwegians. If all of this sounds a little loopy to you, it goes to follow here that Ture Erik Lund wrote a whole series of novels about a man called Thomas Myrbotten who goes insane when the Norwegian Ministry of Culture hires him to write a think piece about historical monuments. A task that results in a desperate attempt at rejecting Norwegian modernity by fleeing into the wilderness and dissolve himself into pure, unadulterated nature. That doesn't go very well, by the way. As far as I understand Lund's authorship, our desire to record and conserve our entire past is merely an extension of modern gluttony and it is indeed true that the antiquarian sciences emerged around the time of the Industrial Revolution, where people did insane things like tearing down medieval churches simply because they were old. There are numerous such examples of vandalism in Norway, performed against ancient monuments, and it seriously does make me think that there is something about that time that skewed our attitude towards old things. 
and seems symptomatic of a brand new way of perceiving the past and using history itself. To Lun, there might be no real difference between building a protective fence around a runestone and tearing it down. An ancient monument, say a Viking burial mound, is taken out of existence the very moment you restore it and begin to mow the grass around it. The monument is assassinated and replaced by an invasion of the body snatchers like representation of itself. The physical monument is still there, but there is something about it that has changed. It has ceased to live its organic life and instead been assimilated by this antiquarian monster. Just as the true Norwegian ceases to exist, the moment he identifies himself as a Norwegian Norwegian, both of which are unavoidably products of the modern condition. And they are similar to each other just like a city is similar to a natural biome, but one does replace the other. I was actually quite distressed to realize that on some fucked up level, Ture Erik Lund is entirely correct in his assertion, which is tantamount to cosmic horror for a historical conservationist like myself. And in terms of Norwegianness, I like to think that I sympathize dearly with the real Norwegian, but I have no choice but to accept that I am in fact a Norwegian Norwegian by default due to my participation in these debates. This is in fact an inescapable tragedy, and one of the coping mechanisms that Lund offers in his books is the property of being a so-called ondsmenneske, or human of soul or spirit, however I am supposed to translate this term. The Norwegian language nuances aren't very easy to translate here. And these tragic characters all seem to end up as distressed alcoholics who spend their days crying by the kitchen table as the character of Thomas Mielbotten does. What I think I'm trying to get at here is an interrogation of the very concept of an ethno-linguistic, cultural, and national identity itself. Not to dismiss them, but to come to grips with humanity's relation to the past, this loop of past, present, and future that we are always caught in. Perhaps especially those of us who are obsessed with the archaic, but aren't satisfied with mere antiquarian materialism. I don't know what it means to be human, and the best approximation that I can make is to make some sense out of what it means to be me, or at the very least try to understand the culture that I came from. A critical theorist might say that such identities are imaginary, fictitious, almost as if they don't really mean anything, that they only exist as a fact of consensus. While I am not swayed by that philosophy, I cannot deny that there are certain aspects of that perspective that are also true. On the flip side, there are ethnic essentialists who would say the opposite, that it all comes back to the blood elevating or reducing, however you choose to look at it, the question of Scandinavian identity to a question of race, that everything that has to do with my identity ultimately grew out of the blood pumping through my veins as if Norwegianness itself is as good as coded in my DNA. It is hard to argue against the fact that I am the biological son of my parents and that I represent a fairly standard example of a human being genetically congruent with the traits and markers of my home region's historical population probably going back quite some time, and that my physical anatomy, my ability to digest certain foods, my susceptibility to certain diseases, and at least some of my personality traits have been shaped by my ancestors in a relatively confined geographical space. Each and every one of us is the product of a stream of biological and cultural information exchange coming to us from the ancient past. It includes us in certain groups and excludes us from others. Sometimes that matters, sometimes it does not. This is pure mechanics as far as I'm concerned, and doesn't mean shit unless there's some sort of cultural context or continuity 
to inform that identity? What good would my Scandinavian ethnicity be if I'm living on a culturally void Martian colony? It may well be the case that all this culture and ethnicity shit is totally arbitrary. I don't want to pick between reductionism and essentialism, but if origins simply don't matter to the context, then the Parthenon marbles may as well stay in London. Identities and cultures might as well just be tricks of the Gnostic demiurge. Distractions to keep us from realizing that the world sucks, and that we should live our lives in ascetic devotion instead. If it is all an illusion, then at the very least it is a sublime one. But at the end of the day, nobody's really surprised to hear that I'm not Chinese. Awareness and curiosity of one's identity can become pathological once it collapses into narcissistic navel-gazing of the cosmetic self. I like to hope that my understanding of myself and my origins informs my understanding of what it means to be a human being, and my so-called Norwegianness is more easily obtained to me than a study of how it feels to be Chinese. I don't think my perspective can be reduced to the binary here. Identity in a long-term perspective, bound by the shackles of time and space, and ruled by the tyranny of both history and, sadly, contemporary politics, is a form of layer cake or like a mass of geological strata that together forms a mountain, protruding and vast, and crumbling, which can be seen in all three dimensions, with many vistas, valleys, caves, and layers hidden from sight. But living, in a sense, it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. My subjective concept of Norwegianness does not hinge on the survival of the Norwegian nation-state, but whether I like it or not, it is at least partially a product of it. Norway defines a Norwegian legally as anybody with a Norwegian citizenship. It is funny that the Norwegian legal definition of a Norwegian is so similar to the American definition of an American, because as a Norwegian living in America and married to an American woman, I could hardly imagine an identity more different to my own. It seems that most people I speak with do not have a very developed sense of heritage. You can be American and this or that or whatever, you know. With the legal definition of a Norwegian, there's more of a double standard, I believe, because there is an unspoken level to Norwegianness that is not officially addressed. And anybody who believes that this hidden wall does not exist will inevitably end up butting their heads against it again and again and again and again. The question of being an American is a question of conviction. It's an identity built on a slogan and a way of life. But I am a Norwegian because I did not have any other choice. I did not choose to become a Norwegian, but I did choose to embrace it, along with the whole symbolic package down to the woolen sweater and a master's degree in Old Norse. Again, something that probably puts me into this camp of the so-called Norwegian Norwegians, but, you know, what can you do? I ate the forbidden fruit and here I am. I have many questions about this definition. Say, do I remain Norwegian after I die? when I pick up the proverbial passport in the land of the dead? Does my Norwegianness cease to exist if by some unforeseen event the political entity known as the Kingdom of Norway ceases to exist? I can only conclude, of course, that myself, my body or soul, is something separate from the formal status of the entity I am represented by in my passport, though I suppose that that is also an extension of myself in some form or fashion. So if even my ethno-linguistic identity is not the same as being Norwegian, why refer to myself as a Norwegian at all? I suppose that some of the reason is historical, and a lot of it is pragmatic. You need some common language to work with, and it doesn't pain me to identify myself as a Norwegian. And why should it? It's how I was brought up. I was brought up with the idea that I was Norwegian, as opposed to 
those guys or you guys or anybody else. Some say that groups, identities, and communities are fictions we create. That sort of jargon seems to imply that fictions are something unreal or less real than other things we concern ourselves with, or that my Norwegian identity is a sham that would not be able to withstand scrutiny. It's the same as when people talk about social constructs as if wearing shoes or wiping your ass isn't a social construct as well. And it's a severe underestimation of the power of fiction, performance, and its role in the emergence of reality. As if bringing attention to this would wake us all up from our collective delusion and make us admit that the emperor is in fact naked. Instead, I think many of us have come to the realization that this peculiar strangeness is really integral to this whole machine we perceive as reality. You cannot not have an identity, and to deny it is to boil it down to a matter of personal taste and aesthetics, which is undeniably one aspect of it. It's way easier to pick a side in the nature-nurture debate if you hate your dad. Or conversely, if you have a specific set of religious convictions, I don't know. What I do know is that if I have to choose a fiction, I'm much more likely to pick an older one than a new one. And if I have certain oddly conservative stances, this is probably why. Because I happen to think that people lose sight and forget about the bigger picture. Older fictions are traditionally independent of authorship and the cult of personality that comes with it. Unless we're talking about some rare streak of genius, older fictions seem to be better equipped to express the timeless concerns of the human spirit by the simple fact that many of them have withstood the test of time. They can still speak to us despite being hundreds, sometimes even thousands of years old. And whether we regard any specific subject as being good or bad or morally objectionable or even as an ethical imperative, I don't actually fucking care. I think there is some wisdom, something to be drawn from the fact that there are certain traits and tendencies in the human personality that simply refuses to die. I tend to ascribe some inherent value to the seniority of robust concepts. It doesn't have to be rational, and perhaps there's no greater meaning behind it beyond the self-justification of its very existence. And here I could probably disclose that I do believe in fate, but not in predestination. I think that there are certain things that are because they have to be, and they are that way because what was. And in the future, things are bound to occur because of the way that things are today. Whether or not there is any meaning behind it is entirely irrelevant. If it can be changed or helped is irrelevant. This is close to the concept of fate as it occurs in the old Germanic, heroic, and mythological poetry. Fate happens because it must. Past and future are related, subterranean dimensions veiled by death. But fate is not a fixed narrative. Destiny is not stalemate, but a device that compels us to act because the whole universe is comprised of action. While it all seems so chaotic and incidental, even my arbitrary so-called Norwegian existence isn't even as random as it may seem. Sure, none of us have the power to choose the circumstances of our own birth, but each and every one of us is the direct result of countless generations making conscious choices and rolling with the punches in situations beyond their control and comprehension. The obvious alternative is to 
imagine a world where things that are familiar to us simply don't exist, or where history took a completely different course. One of the listeners asked me a while back if I would ever be interested in doing alternative histories, like, uh, you know, entertaining scenarios where history simply ran a different course than it actually did in our world. Like, what would have happened if Christianity was never introduced to Scandinavia? So basically, what would indigenous Scandinavian religion look like if it had been allowed to develop freely uh, from the Viking Age and into the modern post-industrial world? A highly speculative but interesting subject nonetheless. Long story short, I don't think it would look very much like contemporary neo-paganism, nor do I think that this would have uh, led Scandinavia down a glorious path of uh, towards some kind of golden age or anything like that. I, I think that there are just too many factors to consider. I'm sure that we would have a lot more roadside shrines, temples for minor local deities. Maybe like once a year we would get to see the king step onto the palace balcony and whack an oxen over the head with a sledgehammer or something along those lines. All of which sounds completely absurd and anachronistic given that history actually ran the course that it did. It is strange to think about how some of the things that we take for granted are taken to be completely natural features of the world that we live in. And that any alternative to what we see is thought of as being utterly impossible. If you want to conceive some alternate timeline, you can play certain computer games like Crusader Kings 2, which is basically a dynasty simulator set to the Middle Ages, and everything that that entailed, such as expanding your political influence and securing the line of secession. Anyway, if you don't screw around with the options too much, uh, there are certain things in the game that will play out more or less as they actually happen in history, like certain countries will unify, certain nations will go to war with each other, uh, Charlemagne will chop down the Irminsul, for example, and so on and so on. So at this time, I think I was playing a Bavarian Duke or something like that. I have this character that I always create, which is a, a lusty, extremely fertile dwarf master seducer, and I use him to basically plant uh, dwarven genes across the uh, royal houses of Europe by basically just whoring my way around them. Sometimes I would do stuff like using cheats to give my character a deadly STD, which I would then transfer to Charlemagne's wife, of course, in the hopes that she would then pass this disease on to Charlemagne himself. I would then use the same cheats to cure myself of the illness, um, but sometimes that would just go full circle and infect me from another direction after touring the uh, royal estates of the continent, so to speak. The goal was obviously the establishment of a bastard midget shadow dynasty infecting the great houses and ruling under their name. It was in the middle of my dysgenic jihad to fill the royal palaces with imbeciles and little people that I, in the guise of a four-foot-tall Bavarian sex monster, realized that Scandinavia was somewhat deficient when it came to dwarven bastards. I scrolled northwards, but I was shocked to find that not only had Norway failed to unify, it had been entirely conquered by the Sami people. Needless to say, I shook my head and found this outcome entirely implausible, given the political and technological benefits of Norse culture over its Iron Age Sami contemporaries. With all due respect, this was an absurd proposition, but not unexpected in Crusader Kings 2 which also features an expansion pack where the Aztecs discover Europe and promptly sets to colonize the continent. The game had effectively subverted my sense of Norwegian history and taunted me with a vision of a bizarro Scandinavia, 
ruled by the iron fist of virtual nomadic reindeer herders. And with this confrontation, I was also forced to entertain a Pandora's box of Fennoscandinavian tyranny, a sort of anti-Scandinavian inverse of how Norwegians, Swedes and Russians actually treated the Sami peoples throughout the ages. An alternate reality of Samification of the Nordic peoples, where Norwegian children are taken from their homes and forced to live in tents out in the tundra, where they are forbidden from speaking their native language in schools and hence forget it altogether. A timeline of forced conversion to Sami religion, to just name a few of the possible horrors that this universe might contain. And I'm not bringing this up to fuel some Scandinavian guilt trip about some of the very unkind things that happened in the past and how these play out and have consequences for Sami identity today, but more of a humble reminder of how blissfully unaware we are about the fact that history does not always play out for the benefit of each and every one of us. But maybe it's ultimately pointless to speculate about worlds that could have been but are not. There's a poem by the Portuguese author and poet Fernando Pessoa that goes like this. Accept the universe as the gods gave it to you. If the gods wanted to give you something else, they'd have done it. If there are other matters and other worlds, there are. I really like this poem. So much, in fact, that it was actually one of the first things I put up on BrutNorse.com, specifically in the About section, where I tried to wrestle around the homebrewed concept of Scandi-Futurism, which ties directly into this episode, I do suppose. The Norwegian national anthem talks about the country that rises forth, and the saga night that descends and lays the dream upon the earth. The dream, I suppose, is none other than Norway itself. In this national mythology, we are led to believe that the nation is something fateful, and that select heroes of the Norwegian past are in a sense puppets destined to make manifest the very idea of Norway itself, and how through struggle the free Scandinavian nations would find reconciliation in accordance with some divine plan. But I'm afraid that the fact remains that we could have lived in a drastically different world. At one point in time, the concept of a unified Norwegian kingdom would have been radical and preposterous. You gotta remember that Norway at the start of the Viking Age was just a bunch of individual kingdoms and so-called tribal territories, whose allegiances shifted and mutated with every new generation of rulers. These dynasties were descendants of kleptocrats from the power vacuums of the Roman and migration periods with cleverly devised military ideologies that secured them the reputation of ancient and proud lineages, straight back to the gods themselves. And though many claims must have been pushed on the basis of intermarriage, why would anybody be as greedy as to deny these other families the right to rule territories that had apparently been in their possession since the heroic past? While some re-territorialization must be accounted for due to the fact that these kings waged war more often than some people changed socks, there's not too much incentive in these warrior societies towards grand centralization. Most of the barbarian nations that emerged after the fall of Rome collapsed within a few generations. I think Slavoj Žižek once joked about a man who left his wife to be with his mistress, and then discovering that the mistress left as well. It is very clear that the ambitions and dreams were often much greater than the actual ability to pull it off. And in a culture where enemies are almost as important to your political career as friends are, why should the many bow to one? And why exactly these Scandinavian territories and not those Scandinavian territories? You can apply these questions to any emerging historical kingdom, really. It is quite likely that the unification was fueled in part by general Norse expansionism at the time, and also inspired by the great nations and empires of the continent. By the Viking era, 
the endemic warfare of the earlier Iron Age, was partially converted into more of a raiding economy where your targets and enemies were external. So members of old feuding dynasties might suddenly find themselves raping and pillaging in England instead of torching each other's meat halls. When did this dangerous and subversive idea of Norwegianness begin to sneak in? That the entire western half of Scandinavia could or ought to answer to one sovereign ruler, when up until then it had basically been the exact opposite. Politically separate regions with common linguistic, ethnic and cultural heritage. It is hard for us to even entertain the notion because we are so used to thinking that one people or ethnic group equals one nation state, but back then that wasn't a given at all. Scandinavia was already pretty much the Norseman's oyster. Why would they desire to delegate power to someone even more distant than their regional kings and chieftains? The fact is that many of them probably didn't. The unification of Norway in the 9th century was probably a tremendously traumatic event, given that it forced through a mass exodus of people from Norway, whom we now call the Icelanders. If I visit some mundane government office today, I find it strange to think that this is somehow the extreme result of the dreams of some local warlord more than a thousand years ago. But perhaps even stranger how the presence of the Scandinavian martial aristocracy lingers to this day in a nation that the original unifiers in the biological sense conceived but would not in a thousand years be able to picture. Norway as a concept must have originated as a fiction in the minds of Iron Age military elites. As such it provides a great example of what the weird philosopher Nick Land refers to as hyperstitions, that is, fictions that manifest themselves into the world develop some form of impersonal autonomy and ultimately become as real as you and I. As I said, the concept of Norway originally held no currency back in the day, but once the idea had been introduced, it began to reproduce itself mimetically until it had finally realized itself as a political territory that people lost their lives battling over, despite the fact that it was probably not in the best interests of the majority of the Norse peasantry to actually do so. Now hold on a minute, because even at the time of recording, I can already hear some of the protests coming to me from listeners in the future. They say, but Eirik, what about the national romantic movement of the 19th century? I thought Norwegian national identity was a post-enlightenment phenomenon cooked up to strengthen our sense of independence and cultural particularity. Yes, deaf listener. Part of this is absolutely true. Many of our national symbols owe to the rediscovery and repopularization of Norse literature that came with the rise of nation-states, the industrial revolution, and the antiquarian sciences, all of which fed into the sense of humanity as a historical creature, but perhaps modern man as dwelling at the end of history as opposed to everything else. The 17, 18, and early 1900s represent an arc of historical revival, but it is not some fiction that occurred in a vacuum. Everything they needed for a full-fledged Nordic Wagner-style revival was dormant in our cultural history, almost like a seed waiting for the right conditions to pop out of the ground. Although with the benefit of hindsight, I guess that is easy to say. Specialized Old Norse knowledge of the past was, for a time, only maintained by learned weirdos and often lawyers who needed to deal with Old Norse law, given that the 13th century national law of Magnus de Lawmander retained legislative power all the way up to 1687. What happened with the national romantic movement was that leading ideologues had the power to point to the idealized Norwegian peasant society and drew the conclusion that this represented something primordially Norwegian and that Norway could once again pick up where it left off with the Black Death and our unions with Denmark and Sweden. 
to return to the spirit of a bygone age and reinvent ourselves in a way that is ultimately true to the supposed vision laid out by the kings of old. This is probably actually not that different from how medieval kings appropriated the legendary Viking Age past and portrayed Harald Fairhair as a just and noble heathen set to prepare Norway for its ultimate worldly destiny, to justify not only Norway as a political unit, but their own governance over it, and to create a cosmos in which the Norwegian entity could evolve relatively unhindered. One common denominator here seems to be the extensive use of art. To this day, we don't actually know for sure which territories originally constituted the idea of the actual core of Norwegian territory. If it originally referred to just a tiny patch of the southwest Norwegian coast, or a more abstract, greater regional concept. The sources are difficult to work with because they are essentially works of political propaganda composed to affirm the claims of the victorious Fairhair dynasty. The Norse texts are also selective in whom they choose to refer to as Norwegians at any given time. Rebel territories of the old school regional dynasties are often referred to by their local ethnonyms, while Nordmen or Norwegians has the connotation of proximity to the ideologically correct Super King. It is very likely that Norway's ultimate unification was the result of many failed attempts from different players at expanding their power into a greater kingdom, but the sagas would have us believe that it all lay in the hands of one single man, Haraldr Hårfagri, or Harald Fairhair, as the unifier and conqueror of Norway. Harald became the standard that all later kings had to measure themselves by. His ideological position was one of so much charisma that the paganism of Harald's imperialism had to be integrated into the later Christian national ideology. Forcing scribes to complement the Christian monarchy with Harald's legendary descent from the gods, as well as the active use of pagan and legendary symbolism in the propaganda celebrating him. Due to this, even contemporary skaldic poems make bad sources when it comes to understanding the human being that King Harald was. The person really eludes us because as soon as his descendants rose to power, Harald was no longer an ordinary man, but a mythological device that could be used to serve a surprisingly wide range of political causes, a use he most definitely sowed the seeds for if he ever actually lived. Some scholars have brought attention to the fact that Harald is entirely unattested outside of medieval Norse retrospectives. There's no contemporary evidence mentioning his name, and a lot of the older sources seem to stress the legendary nature of Harald's biography. Therefore, some have gone as far as to suggest that Harald is something akin to a medieval psyop designed to insert the governing dynasty into the numinously charged ancestral past. Before the sagas were even written, Harald was being used as a tool. A legendary figure, a puppet that on one hand served as a catalyst of Norwegian political unity, which eventually took him down the path of embodiment of the Norwegian logos itself, so to speak, and then you have the Icelandic version in which Harald provides an alibi for the ancestors of the Icelanders to flee the Norwegian tyranny and rise to fully realize a mode of existence as equal freemen. According to my line of reasoning here, Harald is a Janus-headed mythological founder of two separate nations. These two ideas might seem at odds with each other, but quite surprisingly the motivations of the Icelandic saga authors seem to line up very well with the agenda of the Norwegian court that commissioned the royal sagas from them. For example, the Icelandic saga authors tend to lowball the influence of other ethnicities like Scots, Irish and other Gaelic populations that have a much greater genetic imprint on the Icelandic population than the sagas would have you believe. 
The purpose of this selective emphasis was obviously to tie the two nations together in a common narrative heritage that conveniently also covered up the fact that the Icelandic settlement project probably originated as an elite phenomenon over a much greater expanse of time than the sagas like to present. Rather than a colonization of peasant underdogs, Iceland was originally settled by uprooted elites of dwindling wealth, some of which were probably right to contest Harald's claim and fled, fearing for their life. This is history as the Icelandic saga authors would like it to be. But the reality is probably that many of their ancestors had ambitions, or at least came from families who had ambitions that were not too different from those of Harald Fairhair. They played the Game of Thrones and lost. Alongside the convergence of so-called real historical events and fiction, there is also the level of the supernatural to take into account. Religious-like behavior enters the stage. A clear example would be the Danish flag, called Danebrog, which constitutes the original template for all later Nordic cross-style national flags. It is the oldest European flag still in use, and as far as I know, the only one claimed to have been designed by some unspoken supernatural entity as it numinously fell from the heavens during the Baltic Crusades. Just this week, I made a trip to the Norwegian consulate here in New York, and waiting for my appointment, there wasn't really much to do but to gawk at the obligatory portrait of the king and queen. Norway is a constitutional monarchy, and we continue to have a king and queen because we decided so in a referendum about a hundred years ago. And though the current royal family is only barely related to the original dynasties, their almost liturgical role is to embody the institution of Norway's very founding. Working like a kind of transplanted kidney in order for Norway to uh, work in accordance with the original intent or concept of the nation, even though the king's role is more or less just representational at this point. Of course, if I were a historian of the general European monarchy, I would probably have presented this in accordance with a more continental point of view, to not even speak of one that is more academically sound. But I am not aiming for that sort of perspective in this episode. I'm talking about the king as an actor in a ritual performance. In this case, a ritual that not only performs the Norwegian identity and the Norwegian state, but makes the two one. So it makes sense to think of the king in terms more akin to what my father might think. And if I understand my father correctly, the king is more sort of a transrational mascot for our country and its culture, whose exact personality and physical body is of secondary importance, who represents and bestows providence for the nation pretty much in the same way as a gnome or a household spirit works to protect the home. A spirit that is delighted when you raise the flag on its birthday and when you play the national anthem really loud early in the morning on 17th of May. And while the individual Norwegian politicians do everything they can to bring across the message and or illusion that they are merely people like you and I, arguably a continuation of the peasant nation myth, any visit to a state office will quickly dispel the illusion of an egalitarian nation of hobbits. At the consulate, I obviously saw many examples also of the national coat of arms, which depicts a crowned, rampant lion wielding a silver-bladed axe against a red background. Beyond the heraldic significance of the design, the motif conceals symbols of particular significance to the legitimization of the Norwegian state and our national mythology with it. The axe is symbolic of Olaf II, often called the Holy, whose martyrdom marks the exact moment of Norway's mystical transformation into a Christian nation, the death of the king, 
was the birth of the saint, and the axe is there to show us that Olaf is still the Rex Perpetuus Norvegiae, eternal king of Norway. The Scandi Futurist in me acknowledges this, while the axe simultaneously serves as a reminder that we are, in a sense, religious orphans by fact of our relative secularity, the quasi-pagan residues of our folklore, and our awareness and curiosity about the fact that we once served a very different set of gods, gods that may be waking up, possibly from the dead. The axe has been popularly conceived as a peasant weapon as well, going all the way back to the migration era, playing right into the hands of the myth of Norway as primordially a nation without an aristocracy, which is a historical exaggeration, if not an outright lie, and in part a coping mechanism to later historical misfortunes. Just as the Icelandic cosmogony likes to imagine an Iceland without greedy aristocrats, the financial crisis of 2008. Norwegians like to imagine that Norway was always one big anarchist commune because the power we had was eventually eclipsed by that of the Danes. We often say that Harald unified Norway into one kingdom, but in reality this unification didn't even last that long. The sagas attest to generations of contesting bloodlines and offshoots of Harald's dynasty. The kingdom was unified, then broke apart, then it was unified again several times and in slightly different forms. What had been solidified was this hyperstitional mimetic loop in which the idea of Norway had infected the ruler ideology and become inescapable, establishing that certain territories were in fact limbs and organs of the Norwegian body, a body whose proportions must have been constantly mutating. And as a body, Norway was actually envisioned in the court poetry of the Viking Age. The nation, in a sense, becomes the marriage of the king and the country, and the country being represented by the giantess Jordr, who was one of the god Odin's lovers by dubious consent. The sagas describe Harald as having several wives or concubines, but oddly they make a very big fuss about one specific wife by the name of Snefrider, who was apparently of Sami stock. Part of the reason is surely that Snefrid happened to be the one wife that the surviving 13th century ruling dynasty apparently descended from, but this also offers yet another parallel to the culture-nature-god-giant us-them-Norse-Sami juxtaposition. In Norse ethnic stereotyping, figures of ogres, trolls, and Sami people overlap with each other, the mythological other of the Jotnar versus the mythological us of the gods and the ethnic us of the Germanic Norsemen versus the ethnic other of the Finno-Ugric Sami forms a kind of unity of opposites that facilitates the creation of something entirely new, in this case the Norwegian state. I'm not a big fan of the English term giant to describe what Norse people called Jotnar, but here in our understanding of Norwegianness as an organism, it is interesting to see that Norway herself was sometimes imagined as a Jotun given that it comes from Proto-Germanic etunas, which means glutton, or literally, eater. There is even a legendary story about Harald's youth as the foster son of a troll by the name of Dovri. Dovri, or modern Norwegian Dovre, happens to be the name of a central Norwegian mountain range that plays an important part in the Norwegian folklore as well as its national consciousness, representing that which is steadfast, ancient, and eternal, unchanging which is why the oath that sealed the Norwegian constitution in 1814 goes United and true, till Dovre crumbles. Harold's association to this Dovri creature must have been important, as somebody took the time to compose an entire saga about it called Saga Harald's Konungs Dovrafostra. 
<clears throat> which is unfortunately lost. But just as the gods were ascribed some primitive Jotun ancestry, so Harald's own genealogy went back to mythical Arctic origin, descended as he was from a giant by the name of Fornjotr, who might well be none other than the pre-cosmic giant of Ymir himself. The short sagas, Hversu Noregr Bigdisk and Funden Noregr, or How Norway Was Settled and Norway Found, respectively, recount how one of Fornjot's descendants, Nor, goes out looking for his sister, Goi, who had been taken by a giant hailing from the Dovre Mountains. Nor goes forth, conquers the Norwegian territories, and marries a giantess in the process, setting a legendary precedence for Norway's unification under his descendant Harald Fairhair, as well as the ideological implications of his marriage. Again, we are probably seeing, at least partially, the work of later court authors working their time magic and projecting stories onto the past. It quickly becomes a fool's errand to even try to discern a linear chronology in this chicken or egg game of royal mythology. Though it is impossible to set a definite date for the conceptualization of a Norwegian unity, it is clear that Harald's conquest forms the watershed, the point of no return for the Norwegian idea. And with it came an early sort of proto-concept of Norwegianness itself, set apart from the more general ethno-linguistic, decentralized community of Old Norse speakers across the Viking Age Scandinavian diaspora. A point in time where the capacity of being a quote-unquote Norwegian, that is to say a Nordmader or Northman, was a viable identity alongside being simply Eiriker, son of him, son of who, from Misery Farm in the land of the tribe of the Rugians. And while it seems that this idea stuck to some extent, we must consider that identities are often also fashions, like today. Uh, being Icelandic is a cool and hip thing, while historically they were kind of regarded the bums of the north, right? Even more so than the Norwegians, which really speaks volumes. If I went back in time and asked the medieval peasant whether his Norwegian identity was important to him, he would probably not understand the question, because they were, in Ture Erik Lund's terms, for the most part real Norwegians, as opposed to Norwegian Norwegians like myself. Then of course the conditions for his sense of self would have been completely different, as opposed to my situation growing up in a globalized post-industrial hellscape, where drinking drinks and listening to folk music thinking that yeah, these, these are my folks, this is my culture, is one of the things that keeps me sane. Maybe that's a coping mechanism or an illusion or something. But nonetheless, it's something that allows me to fully embrace something that is initially entirely involuntary. You know, getting hurled into this violent cosmic meat grinder. I don't know. It ain't, it ain't half bad. And there is also the question of whether Norway originally had a more restricted geographic connotation than the actual political territory, which by necessity is bigger than the former. Consider the fact that Greenland is a part of Denmark today, but Greenland isn't actually Denmark. This is given some credence by the fact that the farmers of Setestal in the valleys of Inner Norway, even in the 20th century, sometimes used the term Norwegian when referring to people from the West Coast as opposed to themselves, which seems to imply that a greater national identity was hard for them to bend their head around. Similarly, in the Gudbansdal Valley, the term north came to take the meaning of the direction that the valley was pointing. The southern parts of the valley are pretty much north-south aligned, but the valley bends westward as you go further north. And in those upper parts of the valley, locals would refer to the north 
when they were actually talking about the West. Just to serve as a reminder here that the term Northman or Nordmader or Norman are geographically relative terms that are subject to local cultural conditions and didn't always mean the things that we take them to mean today. William S. Burroughs at some point said that all history is fiction and I think something to the effect that we are all free to change and meddle with the past as we will. As cynical as that sounds, I do believe that this is actually how we treat the past in some capacity, regardless of whether we accuse others of so-called appropriation or abuse of it. History is in a sense the whore of the historians, and the way that we change the past to suit our needs and make it sing with our contemporary trends and ideals is as good as time travel by any other name. Nick Land's writings are often parodied for containing sentences like Neo-China arrives from the future. I think that we may well conclude that, depending on how we see it, Norway arrives either from the past or phases into archaic existence retrospectively. Or maybe both. Hell, I don't know. At this point, my sense of identity is so abstract that my cognitive dissonance has been polished into a fine diamond. But that may just owe to the fact that my modern self is conditioned to think that all stories need to be mutually coherent, and that history is nothing more than a rational series of in-themselves meaningless events. And of course these events apparently occur on a linear timeline, and not in the loop that I am philosophically inclined to believe. Norse writers had a much more malleable, pragmatic perspective of where history ends and fiction begins. Maybe there is something to be learned from this vivid and reciprocal view of the past's relation to the now. Something beyond mere antiquarianism and reductive historical models. Something that can inspire and nourish our sense of self without becoming entirely blind to the whims of fictitious suggestion. I am not sure I've come any closer to understanding who I am and what it means to be Norwegian, but thank you for taking this walk with me. My most heartfelt thanks goes out to my supporters at patreon.com forward slash Brute Norse for being such patient and wonderful people. You've been listening to the Brute Norse podcast. I am, as far as I know, still Erik Storsen, telling you to rip the future a new one. Have a good night.
Because everyone discovers that Luther Fisk and Lassa makes Norwegian pepper lovers. Now all the world can have a ball. You're better than that year at all. Or Luther Fisk did Brenda Lynn. You made me feel like Carol Brin.